All right. Shall we move on to part six? Sixteen additional problems with evolution. Yes. I love I love that how he opens this chapter. Um, he said, "It seemed like the more research I did on Darwinism, the more problems I kept coming uh, coming up with that could not be satisfactorily answered." If you check out the footnotes to this, let me just、yes. read a few. Philip E. Johnson, Darwin on trial. Scott M. Hughes, the collapse of evolution. Scott M. Hughes, the collapse of evolution. Heckel's embryos fraud rediscover. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they rediscovered it. Hey, he read Richard Dawkins, the Blind Watchmaker. That's good.、Really? Defeating Darwinism by opening minds. That's Philip E. Johnson as well. He's got that quoted a couple times. And、oh. uh, God, the evidence、it. of consciousness in Lee Strobel's The Case for a Creator. Jesus Christ. So、um, you know, I see a pattern there. There is a little bit of a pattern here. Did you see any of these sixteen that were particularly problematic? I don't want to. Maybe we should just read them off. Probably, I <laughs> and mean, then go into a few that、um, I'm going to read off these 16 problems, and then let's choose a few. How about that? That sounds good. Number one, the Miller-Urey experiments in the prebiotic soup. Number two, the mysterious origin of flowering plants.、Mm. Number three, homology. Four, punctuated equilibria as an explanation for lack of change. Five Ernst Haeckel's biogenetic law. <laughs> Six modern breeding experiments, natural versus artificial selection. Seven the peppered moth example. Eight the Galapagos finches. Nine mutant fruit flies. Ooh, mutant <laughs> Ten. ones. Ten lack of testability. Eleven information versus matter and energy. Twelve. He goes on for a couple pages on that one. Twelve transposition, and in parentheses, attributing intelligent behavior to non-intelligent systems. Thirteen,、okay. the first law of thermodynamics. Fourteen, the second law of thermodynamics. Fifteen, the law of biogenesis, which is like,、oh. like begets like. I thought it was going to be the third law of thermodynamics. <laughs> <laughs> And sixteen, consciousness, mind, and the human soul.、Um, a lot of these,、uh, like we've met before in this book, are just simply rehashed. Old, old creationist arguments against evolution. There's, there's nothing new. It's like reading the Kent Hovind thesis. It's just other people's opinions、yeah. uh, stuck together. But of those, what, what would you like to cover? The 60-year-old Miller-Urey experiment? Jesus Christ! Oh, dude, again? I mean, <laughs> I can't do it. I cannot do it. I can't do it. How no, about, I mean, how about the, the, the? Let's do this. The mysterious origin、yes. of flowering plants.、Um, yes. Yes. Mostly because he says no one has any idea how plants evolve. <laughs> yeah, I want to read this to you. It is significant that you almost never see a reference to the evolution of plants as opposed to that of animals. That is mainly because no one has any idea how plants evolved. That's right there on page forty-four.、Um, let's do a little experiment here, Matt.、Um, I'm going to open my browser and I'm going to type in in quotes evolution of plants. I'll、quotes. do it without quotes. And I get back 476,000 results. I wonder if evolution of flowering plants will return us zero. Oh, that's what we—that's、uh, our mistake. Evolution of flowering plants yields 111,000 results, <laughs> including a fairly extensive Wikipedia article. And if you do it without quotes, you get millions. <laughs> <laughs> Well, evolution of plants in quotes—that should be just that、um, thing exactly, right? Right. 
So, the first sentence in the Wikipedia article. The evolution of plants has resulted in increasing levels of complexity from the earliest algal mats through bryophytes, lycopods, ferns, to the complex gymnosperms and angiosperms of today. So it goes through exactly how it evolved. Evolution of life cycles, uh, evolution of morphology. I mean, this thing is unbelievable. And this Man, is just a Wikipedia article. If you've been to the new uh, Natural Museum, Natural History of Museum here in Salt Lake... They have a whole section on plants that you walk through. Fossils. It's impossible, Matt, because no one knows how plants evolved. No one has any idea how plants evolved. I have to stop taking mushrooms and going to the museum. (laughs) (laughs) I must have hallucinated that. I want to give give Kirk a little hint on how plants evolved. Cyanobacteria can perform photosynthesis. So that's a little hint there, Kirk, Mr. Hastings. Do you want to cover any, I mean, I, I can't, homology, punctuated equilibria, Ernst Haeckel, for God's sakes, for about the 20 billionth time about Haeckel. Why are we still hearing about a largely forgotten 19th century scientist who was wrong? Why are we still hearing about that? I give up. Why? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> they can't come up with anything new. Did you ever read, now oh, it's, yeah. not, it's not quoted in here, but did you ever read Michael Denton's Evolution, A Theory in Crisis? Uh, no, I never did. That goes over a lot of this stuff, too, uh, especially homology. I think Ernst Haeckel was in there. The Peppered Moth was in there. Um, that and, uh, what was that other guy's? Jonathan Wells' uh, Icons of Evolution. This gets kind of read like I was rereading those books. What He, um, I, I can't, I just honestly can't go over this yet again. You know, in the peppered moth example, he claims that um, no new species ever emerged. There's only a slight population shift from light to dark colored moths. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know what to say to Kirk. Evolution is that slight population shift. That's the definition of evolution. Right. It's a change in allele frequency over time. Don't let it get to you. Mutant fruit flies. <laughs> so, you know, he's talking about the difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Again, Kirk, if you can't come up with a barrier that prevents small mutations from becoming large mutations over time, then there is no difference between micro and macroevolution. It's the exact same thing. It's just writ large over time. His barrier is time. He just doesn't um, commit to it in this book. Yeah, he never really talks about how old the Earth is. You know, he doesn't write. Uh, suffers from a serious lack of commitment. I think you're right. There's a little bit, I think we talked about before, on uh, the geologic column, you know, but nothing on, like, radiometric dating or... Right, nothing. Uh, He spends a lot of time on Inherit the Wind, though. It's very important. Oh, that's going to be good one. So mutant fruit flies, the experimenting with fruit flies has produced a number of distorted versions of Drosophilia, usually with different numbers of bristles and wings, but it has produced no new species of fly. You know, if we had produced a new species of fly, you know what he'd say? It's still a fly! (laughs) It's not a tomato! (laughs) False! I've never seen a fly turn into a tomato. (laughs) Therefore, evolution is false. (laughs) It's like when you go to the beach and get a sunburn and you don't turn into Wolverine. What the hell? There. QED. QE fucking D. Uh, lack of testability. Number 10. Number 10. 
Let's see. Students are taught today, as they have always been, that the scientific method for collecting and establishing knowledge consists of observation plus experiment. In other words, anything that can be directly observed or established by repeated experiments in a lab must be scientifically true. Contrarywise, anything that does not meet these criteria cannot be said to have been scientifically established as being true. Well, okay, is he, is he making a comment about scientific truthness or establishing, like, certainty? That's the scientific method. So we actually don't know, for example, that the sun uh, is composed of, like, fusion is taking place in the sun, uh, because you cannot repeat that in the lab. Therefore, false. And you can't see it because it's too bright. We don't know that Jesus existed because you don't have that repeated experiment in a lab. We certainly don't have his resurrection either. So you can throw out every single historical science ever. Any abstract science, too. Theoretical physics, astrophysics, anything that's abstract uh, that you can't do it in a lab. Specifically, it's in a lab. <laughs> Established by repeated experiments in a lab. So if you can't directly observe it, so atoms are out. <laughs> we can't directly observe those. They're out. Uh, quarks are out. Quantum mechanics is out. God, his definition of science is, I think everything's out. Pretty much everything's out. It's all out. I mean, if he's not going to accept things that you can infer... Done. Done. Uh, let's see. Paul Ehrlich, who's a professor of biology at Stanford University, and L. Charles Birch, a professor of biology at the University of Sydney, Australia, both have said that the Darwinian evolution is outside of empirical science and that no one can think of ways to <laughs> test it. Uh, no one! I'm calling bullshit on that one. I, he's got a footnote. Um, but they're professors, Chuck. Evolutionary, evolutionary History and Population Biology, Nature, Volume 214, April 22nd, 1967, page 352. If anyone wants to look that up, I guarantee you he has misinterpreted that. Um, but if that is indeed what they say, um, I can think of a way to test it. Every time we fucking dig into the ground and bring a fossil up, it tests evolution. There should be no human fossils uh, three billion years ago. There should be no human fossils in dinosaur layers. Every time we dig a fossil up, we test a theory of evolution. A great test was uh, teak to leak, you know, when these guys thought, hey, we've got these um, amphibias on one hand, we've got the uh, fish on the other. The tetrapod intermediate stage should be in this layer, and our best shot at finding it would be in shallow areas. So here's on the globe where in that layer we'd have a shallow sea or an ocean, and so let's dig there. And like a year or two into it, they found teak to leak. That's a great test of evolutionary theory. You know, just because these professors, which, like I said, I don't think he's quoting them correctly, or even more laughably, Kirk Hastings, can't come up with an idea of how you test evolution, uh, that just proves his lack of imagination, not anything about evolution. Right. Do you want to take information versus matter and energy? I hate information versus matter and energy. <laughs> First of all, what is the creationist definition of information? They're definition is they studiously avoid defining it. They have this intuitive grasp that something with a bunch of numbers or complicated or, or letters is information, but they never define it, ever. They just assume that this intuitive notion of information is good enough. It's rigorous enough. Well, then, I feel I don't have to address that if they are <laughs> just gonna... You know, in here, he never defines in that section information. He's got it in quotes. Um, his right. whole his whole problem is that information is something that's abstract, and so, you know, it's not reducible to matter. It's not, you can't take information and, and, and reduce that to DNA, essentially. 
But since Dawkins said there's lots of information in uh, that, that's from his blind watchmaker, I think. Um, since there's lots of information in there, therefore someone had to put the information in there because you can't get it just randomly out of matter. That's essentially the three pages. That's what I got out of it. I, I, I read through that. I still don't know. I still don't know what information is. He never defines it. Yeah. Um, he talks about a guy who's saying that uh, Don Quixote loses nothing of its meaning or literary quality if it is printed on the cheapest paper. And a trashy romance novel does not improve in quality if it is printed on expensive silk. This is some guy's quoting. The me medium and message are two entirely different kinds of things. So he's saying that, you know, there's, there's a book and then there's information in that book. And uh, if you... I think he's saying that um, the information is uh, transcendent of the medium. Medium, yes. excuse me. Right, correct. Uh, I mean, if that's true, then, you so, know, if, if, you'd, if that's true, then destroying the book would not destroy the information. Right. It still doesn't... I, just, I still don't know what they get, they get out of that. Is there a point that information is... Uh, is it just to define it as an indefinable item so that it cannot have, a, it cannot have come into existence? That's you know, exactly... I mean, that's what he's saying, he's, he, and I quote, The scientific method and common sense, Matt, tells oh. us that all <laughs> rational information must come from an intelligent author, be it a man authoring a book or God putting together the DNA in our cells. So forget about the fact that entire history of science is refuting common sense. Right. <laughs> if common sense were reliable, we wouldn't need science, you dumb fuck. That's what them, their logical fallacies it he's he's just he's killing me here he's killing me all right so 12 transposition attributing intelligent behavior to non-intelligent systems this is essentially a um a rant about you know i think kirk gets most of his scientific information from watching the like discovery channel or something he says quite often when watching a nature program on television you will hear the narrator say something like this quote the giraffe evolved its long neck in order to be able to reach the leaves at the top of very tall trees. And then he goes on to, you know, just excoriate that idea because it's Lamarckism, not Darwinism. Uh, I would like to point out to Kirk that he's watching a nature program. He's not reading a scientific paper. Right. Although even for a nature program, that's not a very good sentence. But... <laughs> well, the, you Maybe know, he's the... watching bad nature programs. There are some rather good ones out there. He's, he's still angry a page later, uh, 57, he says, Yet most nature shows on television continue to make it seem like animals just up and decide one day what it is that they need to survive, and then somehow bring about the physical change needed in order to come up with it. But biology doesn't work that way. Yes, you are correct, Kirk. You are right. Score one for Kirk Hastings. He has um, defeated an imaginary television show uh, where I've never seen... <laughs> And uh, I assume, I assume maybe he's right. Maybe a nature show says that. If they do, they, you know, you can't hold them to the same scientific rigor as journals. Right. But he's right. Um, he goes on to say, even if this kind of evolution could take place in order to help species survive, then why would life have ever bothered to evolve beyond weeds and cockroaches? Why <laughs> would it bother? Indeed. Because <laughs> we know life has a point. It has an end game. It has a goal. Those two species are extremely well adapted for survival. Um, and I remember in our email exchange, he, he brought the same point up. Like, it's a stumper for evolutionists. Why would life have ever bothered, you know? why Life is just a lazy ass. <laughs> it just sits around. 
It wouldn't have ever bothered. Look, Kirk. Jesus Christ. Natural selection plus mutation plus selective pressure, right? I mean, you're talking about the selective pressures of the environment. Um, cockroaches have evolved to fill an ecological niche, right? So weeds have evolved to fill another, a different ecological niche. Now, is he claiming that those two ecological niches are the only two in the entire planet? The ocean doesn't exist. The Arctic doesn't exist. Hydrothermal vents, volcanoes, desert. I mean, come on. You've got lots of different ecological niches or niche. However, you, how do you pronounce that? Niche? Uh, it depends on how uppity you want to sound. Niche, then. Niche. Lots of different ecological niches, niches, whatever you want to call it. So plenty of uh, reason for natural selection to fill those in. All right, first law of thermodynamics. Take it away, Matt. Take it away. The first law of thermodynamics, energy conservation. Kirk says, he says, despite the fact that Darwinian evolution is constantly portrayed in today's popular media as, quote, science, it directly contradicts three of the most fundamental scientific laws we know. These are the ones we know, Chuck, okay? Not your made-up isms. Not, not just like we're guessing with evolution. Right. We know these laws. The law of energy conversation states that matter and energy can be converted from one form to another but not be created or destroyed. It has no known exceptions. According to this law, our material universe simply cannot have created itself as evolutionists claim. Nowhere in evolution, in the science of, of evolution or origin of species, is there anything about how the universe came into creation? Yeah, that's an entirely different field. Right. That's Earth. cosmology. Oh my God. Unless that's the study of makeup. Maybe that's cosmetology. Anyway, that's <laughs> physics. <laughs> Assume, assume that evolution did, and, and, and physics uh, now does. Say that the origin of the universe violated the first law of thermodynamics, which it doesn't, by the way, even if it created itself. You still end up with a net zero. But uh, what about Kirk's theory? Doesn't Kirk's theory of God violate the first law of thermodynamics? If you know, yeah. matter can never be created or destroyed, uh, where did God come from? You know, and I guess he'll say he, space he always existed. Yeah. yeah always, oh, he's outside of our universe, too. That's true. Yes, that was it. Very convenient. All right, so moving along to the second law of thermodynamics. This is one of, this is one of Kirk's favorite arguments. It's impossible, I think, at this point to disabuse him of, of this notion. So I'm, I'm going to try. I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> Are you going to do it in a wordy way, or are you going to do it in a mathematical construct? I, yeah, I'm going to, if he's going to continue to make this claim, he says that on page 59, this law states that the order inherent in any structured system, if left to itself, tends to eventually become disorganized and random. Um, if he's going to make this claim that it, uh, evolution involves it, it, you know, you're going to have to provide evidence for that claim. You can't just state it. The law is actually not a sentence. It's a mathematical equation. So it, it, the equation is delta S, that's the change in entropy, is greater than or equal to the integral of the quantity of heat transfer over the equilibrium temperature of the system. Now, if, if you've got that, you just plug in the equations. And, and actually, Matt, this, is, this has been done in the literature twice. <laughs> the first paper <laughs> by Daniel Steyer in the American Journal of Physics, volume 76, number 11, pages 1031 to 1033. It's called Entropy and Evolution. It found that, and I'll quote, 
The Earth is bathed in about one trillion times the amount of entropy flux, and that's by the sun, required to support the rate of evolution. One trillion times. Now, uh, the second article by Emery Bunn, it's in the same journal, Entropy and Second Law of Thermodynamics is the title, volume 77, number 10, October 2009, page 922 to 925, if you want to look it up. So Emery Bunn found that so long as life on Earth had at least 10 to the 7th seconds to evolve, the second law would not have been violated. You know how many days that is? Let me, hold on, 10, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7. 10 to the 7th, that's what? That's uh, seconds? 10 million seconds. Uh, okay, that's One minutes. with seven zeros after it. And calculating, calculating, and I screwed it up. Anyway, that's that's not very long. 116 days. <laughs> it's, less than, <laughs> it's less than six months. <laughs> oh, God, that's safe from the second law, even under a young Earth creationist timeline. So... If he wants to continue arguing this, he's going to have to show us some goddamn numbers. Show us the numbers. Read these two articles. Show where they went wrong, or at the or very least, plug in your own numbers. Uh, otherwise, I don't want to hear about the second law of thermodynamics ever again. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Did you read number 15, the law number of 15. biogenesis? I almost skipped it just because I couldn't take the phrase, like begets like. <laughs> What the fuck? Did you ever learn about the law of biogenesis in any fucking science class you've ever had? It's a law, Chuck. Law of biogenesis. Now he's just making shit up. He's just making shit up. He's taking shit from the Bible and making a scientific law out of it. Like begets like. Jesus Christ. All I have to say is that what what he sticks in there is proof. He's talking about um, experiments they did about spontaneous generation like Pasteur... With the sterile bottles and, you know, nothing grew in them when they yeah. sealed them up, right? Sterile. And all that showed is that, like, if you have a sterile glass bottle that you clean really well, nothing's going to grow in there. Yeah, um, I, I have a hard time uh, conflating that with with abiogenesis. A totally different mechanism. If, if you're, you know, spontaneous generation, they love to do this. Um, abiogenesis is impossible. Spontaneous generation was proved wrong a couple hundred years ago. Oh, my fucking God. You know, even if um, spontaneous generation occurred, which which the definition of spontaneous generation is like bacteria or at that, that point like mold or, or shit, uh, larva, uh, popping up out of nothing, right? You have a vacuum and then a bunch of bacteria pop up in there. That's not abiogenesis. If you're talking about abiogenesis, you're talking about hydrothermal vents, you're talking about clay substrates, RNA world. Why don't you actually engage with what scientists propose instead of this bullshit um, uh, spontaneous generation that, that posits that bacteria pop out of nowhere? I mean, that's like the definition of straw man. You, you're attacking the wrong argument. But I think it's easier that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's easier to just make shit up, absolutely. Um, the last of his 16 additional problems with evolution is consciousness, the mind, and the human soul. He says that scientific evidence is rapidly piling up that Darwinian evolution could not have produced the human mind because it is immaterial and entirely separate from our physical brain. <laughs> ah, so Kirk's you know, a dualist. I don't. <laughs> Kirk is a dualist. 
uh-huh. believes that um, something like the soul, for example, that's non-physical, it's not energy, it's not matter, so it's something entirely different from matter and energy. So my question to Kirk is, if that's the case, how in the fuck does it interact with the brain? How does something that's totally non-physical interact with the brain? Through an immaterial connection, which is Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) So Kirk's not one of those that subscribe to the the experiments where they, they weighed somebody when they died, and they weighed like... 21 grams less. Right. <laughs> or whatever it was. <laughs> that was their soul departing. You know what I'm yeah. talking about? That's what the... Uh, what was... What they used to do that anyway with... Um, I, I've, read, I've been quoted that before. Well, they weighed these dead bodies right when I was... Who, yeah. who volunteers for that? Get the who? scales out! I'm going! How do you know when the moment of death occurs anyway? You know, right. uh, Well, how, when the body gets lighter. Any sort of precision <laughs> out of that at all. Um, you know, this probably requires an entire podcast because you keep hearing this shit that, you know, consciousness, the mind, the human soul, all this stuff. But the base problem for Kirk's side of the argument is that if it is absolutely non-physical, he has no mechanism for that interacting with something that's physical. Zero, zip, nada, nothing. He also fails to account for head trauma causing memory loss, unconsciousness, uh, behavioral changes, like in the case of Phineas Gage, the guy who got that metal rod shot through his frontal lobe. He was tamping a stick, and it went through his orbit. You know, he was a really quiet, nice guy. After that, he was hanging out with prostitutes and cursing up a storm, and his whole behavior changed. The effectiveness of, of medications for treating mental illness. Right. What about et cetera, just et yeah, introducing molecules to your brain that have, uh, I mean, even alcohol has uh, certain temporary effects. LSD, yeah, mushrooms. That's your soul. That uh, your alcohol is. It's soul juice. It affects your soul. Ah, the mind. So that's what I could say to work when they catch me on drugs. Is it's not me. It's my soul. My soul went out and got high, sir. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> the non-physical portion of my of my mind, right, got high. I can't be responsible for that because it's not connected to me physically. Right. So very quickly, um, the the next three chapters uh, wind up his uh, so-called science portion of it. Part seven: What does microbiology indicate? This is just a, essentially a rehashing of Michael Behe's Darwin's Black Box. Uh, he actually cites irreducible complexity. Seriously oh, yeah. and unironically, as if it has not been uh, refuted multiple times. Uh, the complex cell, basically, he says that the cell has a lot of parts in it, and so it's very complex and complicated, and so therefore it could not have uh, been created by a chance. Right. And that's just your basic logical fallacy, you know, the argument from complexity, is it? Too complex couldn't have happened, and that's pretty much all he says. Right, absolutely. Again, he doesn't engage any counter-arguments. There's a difference between complexity and artifice. If you're looking for someone creating something, um, like, for example, uh, something that's fairly complex would be, you know, the patterns that the waves make in the sand, right? Completely natural. Snowflakes are complex. But if you stubbed your toe against a completely square stone that had 
four sides and it was absolutely 90 degrees and straight, that's not complex, but it shows artifice. It shows that someone actually chiseled that thing out and created it. It's not going to happen naturally. Um, so he's confusing complexity and, and artifice. He goes on to chirality. Uh, Jesus, man. Number three, chirality. Chirality is a term that is almost never used by evolutionists, and it is seldom dealt with in text, school textbooks either. There's a good reason for this, Matt. What is it? If it were discussed more frequently, Darwinian macroevolution as a viable concept would have been completely dismissed a long time ago. My God, this sounds serious. Obviously, this is something many atheistic scientists and school officials do not want. So, chirality, this, out of the entire science section of, of uh, Kirk Hastings' book, this was the only one that actually gave me a bit of pause. You know, when was the last time you heard chirality discussed? When was the last time? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard yeah. chirality discussed. For me, this harkens all the way back 20 years to uh, organic chemistry. He's, he's surprised that chirality is a term that's almost never used by evolutionists. That's because it's in a different field of science, Kirk. That's chemistry, not biology. Uh, those the chemists don't want you to know about this. The though. atheistic chemists. All right, well, he goes on. Um, in his 2002 book, A Skeptic's Search for God, author Ralph Muncaster describes what chirality is all about. So here, here we're going to get a Christian's uh, understanding of chirality. Chiral is the term used to describe molecules that are handed... That is, they come in right-handed and left-handed versions, technically dextroform and levoform. I found that the chirality of certain molecules used in the building blocks of life was a critical factor. Why? Because Why? every single nucleotide that, that's italicized for emphasis uh, in the DNA chain must be of one orientation, right-handed, in order for the entire chain to work. One mistake cannot be tolerated. These, <laughs> these intolerant nucleic acids. Bastards. Likewise, virtually all amino acids and proteins must also be of one orientation, left-handed, for a protein to work. Furthermore, I needed to keep in mind that the chains of both DNA and protein are extremely long, and all amino acids occur naturally in equal proportions of right versus left-handed. So, that, hence, there's the problem. They go on to, to give um, uh, their own <laughs> statistical probabilities for how, you know, What's the probability that length of DNA chain or, or nucleotide or, or protein amino acids uh, would spontaneously occur? That, that means, you know, pop into existence all at once. I know the answer to this. It's 10 to the 50th. <laughs> this guy gets it right. He says, one chance in 10, and this is the exponent here, Matt, 301 million... 29,996. That's the exponent of the 10. Holy crap. That sounds almost impossible. <laughs> it <laughs> seems very unlikely. So, yeah. again, I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that Kirk Hastings has no fucking idea what chirality means. I don't have any fucking idea what chirality means. <laughs> All right. Um, again, this is giving me nightmares because uh, I, you know, not a big fan of organic chemistry. But uh, chirality, or the chemical term, is enantiomer. Um, so you've got two types of a, a molecule, and you have to imagine this molecule in three-dimensional space. The the shorthand for it is your hands. So you've got a right hand and a left hand, right? If right. there is no way that you can rotate your right hand so that it will look exactly like your left hand. 
they are mirror images of each other. If you rotate your thumb around to match the space where it is on your left hand, your palms are facing each other. There's no way to have your palm facing the same way as your left hand and have that thumb come out at the same place. Impossible. Right. You can't rotate I'm, it. I'm not doing it. So <laughs> the same thing is true for uh, three-dimensional molecules. There are some that are enantiomers or mirror images of each other or stereoisomers of each other. There's no way you can rotate that in any plane that it will look exactly like the other molecule, even though the molecule is the same molecule itself. Does that make any sense? That makes sense. Now, notice they also never tell you why life has only one optical isomer, only one enantiomer, or why it's only left-handed or only right-handed. The reason is in proteins, if you have a racemic mixture, so if you have equal amounts of both enantiomers, then you will never get into the secondary structures. You can only fold into, say, alpha helixes or beta-pleated sheets for these proteins if you have, you know, the entire thing is left-handed. If it's a racemic mixture, it's not going to fold. And you need those secondary folds to f form into tertiary folds, the big, you know, uh, folds of the molecule. If you can't fold it into the tertiary, you're never going to have any uh, active protein. So that's why. Kirk doesn't mention it because I guarantee you he doesn't know it. But that's why life uh, has only one, you know, the left-handed or the right-handed. So the question is now, here's the big $100 million question. All right. How, how did this happen? Jesus. If you're on Kirk's side of the equation, this is why it's a science stopper. Kirk's side of the equation says, I've calculated the odds of this happening all at once, which is uh, unrealistic because not even science says it you know, flies into place with these thousands of left-handed enantiomers all at once. But they say, we've calculated the odds, it's not going to happen, therefore Jesus. Apparently God you know, is, is sifting all of these enantiomers out and making sure that life is chiral. Now you can do that, or you can say, hey, let's do some science here, and let's figure out how this happens. Let's theorize and let's experiment. It turns out that there, there's a meteorite, the Murchison meteorite, which landed on the Earth uh, about four and a half billion years ago. If you crack that thing open and take a look at the uh, amino acids that are inside of it, it turns out that there was a small enantiomeric excess. So about nine to ten percent of them were more like right-handed than they were left-handed. Um, so it does occur in nature. Nature's not always racemic. Um, the question is, how does this happen? And uh, there are several plausible mechanisms. For the meteorites, probably uh, circularly polarized light can selectively destroy like a right-handed and, and not damage a left-handed version of this molecule. Are you getting any of this? <laughs> is this extremely boring? It's, of course it is, because this is, uh, this is, this is science. This, this is, is actual science, right? This isn't just God did it. God's fingers are in there sifting right. the enantiomers out. So it's possible, say, in space to do that. So it could have been seeded, this uh, small excess. Now the question is, that excess isn't enough, right? That's only 10%. How do we get to the 100% of life? Again, right. you have a choice of Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus is an awfully busy fellow. Or other natural mechanisms. Um, for example, racemic mixtures don't uh, dissolve in water as readily as optically pure or chiral molecules. So you can easily envision, say, a running body of water that's initially racemic, and uh, the racemic mixture crystallizes, 
and stays there. Uh, and the optically pure or chiral molecule dissolves in the water and is carried downstream. Now, say it's carried downstream for half a mile or so, deposited in a shallow area, and then that's evaporated. Now you have completely naturally, Jesus had nothing to do with it, an optically pure isolated enantiomer of a molecule. That's one possibility. Another is that in the presence of uh, an optically pure, say, right-handed molecule, uh, that can auto-catalyze other enantiomers, and you can get something like a 93% excess just by the presence of having one right-handed or left-handed molecule there. So this, is, uh, this has been duplicated in the laboratory. The theory for this was all the way back, it was posed by Frank, I think, in 1953. That's 60 years ago. Kirk Hastings uh, has no idea of science from the 1950s. 1953 was when Frank first theorized uh, how you would take a small initial imbalance and ultimately turn it into the production of a single enantiomer. 1953. 1953. That was years ago. Years ago. He's aware of the Miller-Urey experiment. He had no fucking idea about this. Why? Because he takes a look at this stuff, he reads a creationist, article or website and that's it well clearly we can't do it the naked assertion has been made done <laughs> right it's a science right. stopper but Kirk right. let me let me um, let me give you a little hint here if you're going to completely rely on authorities you have to make sure that those authorities a either know what the fuck they're talking about which yours clearly don't or B don't have an ulterior motive for telling you something clearly the ulterior motive here is God exists right yeah derived from, somehow from the homo chirality of life. Jesus fucking Christ. That's pretty much all I want to say about that. Uh, they go into the odds, they, they, they conclude the chapter, the odds against the evolution of single-celled life. Um, they cite Sir Frederick Hoyle in his um, jet plane in a, in a junkyard, right? Oh. Um, microbiologist Michael Denton said the following. Uh, they give the probability of um, all these simultaneous events happening all at once to form a single cell, uh, giving a maximum combined probability of 10 to the negative 2,000. Harold Morowitz, another microbiologist, has calculated the odds of a cell randomly assembling under the most ideal conditions to be one chance in 10 to the 100 billionth power. That's the exponent. Holy uh, crap. Are you serious? <laughs> randomly assembling. So, Calculating them under a random chance. The, ah. So that... Again, no one, not even evolutionists, theorized this happened all at once. You got to right. engage with the actual, <laughs> actual arguments. It doesn't just spontaneously generate. That that's that's creationism. Right. <laughs> that's God snapping his fingers. Evolution doesn't posit that. So the last sentence: Thus, based on such calculations, we find ourselves virtually forced to conclude that the sciences of probability and mathematics make it absolutely impossible for Darwinian evolution to have ever occurred, either in the past or at any other time. There well, you go. At least, at least they weren't literally forced. <laughs> Just virtually forced. Just virtually. Holy crap. Well, there it's good go. to know one thing. At least the sciences of probability and mathematics are correct. Apparently those are two separate sciences. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Excellent, excellent, excellent. So then uh, he makes the leap to intelligent design. So he's done away with evolution as a theory. It's impossible. Right. Based on his probability calculations. 
And so your only other alternative, of course, is intelligent design. In a mere 69 pages, he has destroyed the works of... <laughs> <laughs> he should... <laughs> he he should get a Nobel Prize for this. I mean, absolutely stunning. Stunning. Impressive. So, part eight. So, to answer the question, is the concept of intelligent design scientific, of course, you go to an attorney, Philip E. Johnson. He has no scientific background at all. He is attorney. He's an attorney at law. His quote is, if we say that naturalistic evolution is a science and supernatural creation is religion, the effect is not very different from saying that the former is true and the latter is fantasy. Well, that's true. I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. Well said, Philip E. Johnson. <laughs> uh, For some reason, on. I'm wondering why Kirk would choose this quote. <laughs> he goes on to say that 90% of the U.S. population believe that God had some role in creating species. So, of, of course... I mean, of course, if 90% of the U.S. population believe that God had a role, well, why are we even doing any science at all? That, that answers the question. Always. Lay people are always uh, far ahead of scientists. Always. That's why I still believe the Earth is flat. Because a long time ago, <laughs> 90% of everyone I knew. Yeah, so in the 13th century, if you go in and, and do a quiz, the, the population, and 90% of them thought the world was flat, well then... There you have it. It must be true. Uh, so, yeah, so it starts with that. It ends with a statement from Karl Popper about evolutionary theory being outside of science, which Popper later reversed himself on. So it's a pretty good chapter. Yeah. It's awesome. I think uh, the only reasonable argument, it's not still not very reasonable, but the only one you can stand on is, is for God to be outside of, science, outside of science, or else it starts getting really ridiculous of all the things you have to consider. Right. They like to do that because if you set it outside of science, then it's just one more religion for them to say that is a false religion, just like Islam or Judaism or Buddhism or any of these false religions. It's very easy for them to just declare it false instead of having to go to the hard work of actually proving it. Yeah. Well, he Kirk says in this chapter, he says, even if God himself might be beyond the limits of scientific method, that does not mean that what he has done is his creation can be studied by science. And if he did indeed create it, then there should be evidence that will point back to that fact. Why Why not make it obvious then? If, yeah, you know what I mean? If, it's, if, kinda, it's the same thing as Glenn Beck, right? That God would leave these little signposts. Right, like like the like the whore in the bar or whatever that he ran into, wasn't it? Or the... His wife. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> His uh, wife, the whore, in, who was frequenting the bar, yes. That, okay. I apologize to miss that. <laughs> I, was, I retract the apology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I mean, the, the power of God since, um, you know, the year 2000 just keeps getting worse and worse. I mean, it used to be resurrections and, and walking on water, and then now it's like toast, you know, or... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or bleeding statues. He, he leaves these tiny breadcrumbs for people to find um, that that are very obscure. Uh, you know, why doesn't he just appear to everyone in the clouds, a big Jesus face all over the planet? Yo, I'm God. Stop doesn't God understand that if he wants you to believe, and he's going to provide all these these subtle clues that I either have to already be very devout or just like really stupid? 
I did want to point out um, this Karl Popper thing on page 71 to 72. Um, Kirk Asing says, The well-known scientific philosopher Karl Popper once wrote that Darwinism is not really a scientific theory because natural selection is an all-purpose explanation which can count for anything and which therefore explains nothing. So, and then he goes on, right? It's um, nothing. Nothing about how Popper changed his mind. He said, I have changed my mind about the testability and logical status of the theory of natural selection, and I'm glad to have an opportunity to make a recantation. Uh, this is, I think, in 1978. The theory of natural selection may be so formulated that it is far from tautological. In this case, it's not only testable, but it turns out not to be strictly universally true. There seem to be exceptions, as with so many biological theories, and considering the random character of the variations on which natural selection operates, the occurrence of the exceptions is not surprising. So that was in 1978. And of course, Kirk Hastings doesn't know any of this because he doesn't research this stuff on his own. He just reads other people's books. I mean, that's his his idea of research is to read creationist literature. Well, that's how he got this book. And it's, it's selling like hotcakes. I say the man's a genius. Very briefly, um, part nine, superstition, philosophy, and religion. Actually, the chapter opens up with a fairly good discussion on superstition, right? Did you read this? Yes. He talks about the really human did. penchant <laughs> for telling stories, the willingness of humans to deceive, the difficulty historians have of separating fact from fiction. And he even gives two examples of superstition, which I would agree with. Seven years of bad luck from breaking a mirror and astrological signs predicting human behavior, right? So right. he says that, that those superstitions have no rational basis for belief. I'm totally on board. This is like the best chapter so far, right? So far, so good. Right. So the next natural step would be to compare his religion to the previous superstitions and storytelling and just to see how his religion fares, or at least give some sort of reason why any religion is any different from any superstition. He doesn't take that step. He shifts gears wildly. He, just is, he says, what many people don't realize is that the philosophy of naturalism, the doctrine that nature is all there is and nothing exists beyond what we can see, does not have a solid basis in objective fact either. In fact, it is nothing more than a metaphysical assumption. So basically the entire chapter is just saying, oh yeah? Well, you guys are fucked too. You're no better than me! That's a two-cokeway fallacy. You too. You too. Say, say he's right, and the philosophy of naturalism is a metaphysical assumption, which I, I take issue with. Say he's okay. right. That doesn't make religion any more true. <laughs> He's still fucked as far as his religion. Uh, so, uh, you know, I am I give props for starting it really good, but boy, the follow-through, the execution, oh boy, that's terrible. Yeah, there's a couple sentences in there that just, like, gave me hope, you know? Yeah. Astrology, you know, there's a mountain of rational evidence that shows it to be a completely false belief system. I was just, like, impressed with that. But, yeah, he just goes on and, and creates yeah. the... The false equivalency. Like you know, he's the, teetering on the edge of self-enlightenment for the first page or two. <laughs> like right. I can, uh, he's almost going to look inside himself. No. I was no. rooting for him. I was like, carry the thought through. Go for it. Go <laughs> do it. No, he just careens uh, and, and just goes into something that seems to me totally irrelevant. But, uh, but there you have it, Kirk Hastings. So that's the first half of his book. The next half itself goes on religion. And it is, to me, this part, this next part, was vastly more interesting than uh, reading through Kirk Hastings' bumbling attempts at, at, at science and his horrible attempts at refuting evolution. I mean, it's ugh, terrible. 
I thought it was a lot more interesting. This this next part I thought was a lot more interesting. Yeah, the next part I was really interested to hear what you had to say. The first, you know, this first part of this book so far is just all copied from Creation Wiki. It seems like you know, right? Just yeah, this, the, the same crap. Paste job. So what we're gonna record another podcast to go over these religious chapters, but to just whet your appetite for whenever we get to it. Uh, part 10 is the case for the reliability of the Bible. That is going to be good. Part 11, the case for Christ. Stolen, I think, uh, from Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ. The Case for Christ. Part 12, what about non-biblical religions, in which he covers, among others, Mormonism. Ooh. Very fascinating. I was with him in this chapter. I was like, yeah, these are all crap. He's right. got it right. I totally agree with you. <laughs> and then he goes on. Um, so those, uh, what is that, three or four chapters, those were very interesting. And then he goes off on some, like, Scopes monkey trial. Like, half the fucking book is on fucking Inherit the Wind and the Scopes monkey trial. He has a chapter on propaganda, which is amazingly uh, uninsightful. The, the, Kirk Hastings has absolutely no ability to kind of take his uh, beliefs and turn them against himself and take a look at it, you know, no insight. And then conclusion, the ultimate significance of this information. So let's let's hit the religion part at least. I'm not sure if I even want to talk about the Scopes Monkey trial. <laughs> um, we're not going to give a uh, play-by-play a review of the movie and how much we love it because apparently it speaks to us as evolutionists and Darwinists. Yeah, I watch that once a year. Uh, <laughs> Just to reaffirm my faith in evolution. I've got it on Blu-ray. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought Inherit the Wind was uh, surprisingly bad, but I, yeah. know, I did watch it in school. Did you really? I, uh, I've never seen it, actually. Oh, my God. Maybe we will. Maybe we'll do a podcast, just you and me watching Inherit the Wind. Nice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very bad. Questions, questions. People have questions, Chuck. You have answers. They want them. I am um, happy to oblige, Matt. This is off the Facebook page. By the way, whoever runs that, good job. Let's see. We're, we'll start with a softball, and then we'll move into the, the deeper questions. Um, Luke Stoddard wants to know, will you have a beer with him? Uh, the answer to that is no. Fuck you. <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> I, actually, I, I do not like the taste of beer. I actually do not like the taste of beer. The only alcohol I can take is if you uh, smother the terrible taste of alcohol with massive amounts of sugar and sweet, um, high-fructose corn syrup. Right. I have seen this. It's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you just haven't had good beer, I think, is the problem. Well, yeah. Uh, the problem is uh, such a thing probably does not exist. Well, let's just agree to disagree. Uh, moving on. No, you are uh, objectively wrong. <laughs> Damn it. It's been experimentally proven in the laboratory. <laughs> it's science. I've just been virtually forced to give up here. <laughs> Next question. Next question. Andrew Bagley. Bagley? Bagley? He would like to know, how about reuniting with Mr. Allred? Uh, no. Next question. Next question. <laughs> Look. Anything um, else? Uh, you know, I've had a lot of time, uh, nine months now, to kind of sit back and get gain perspective on it. And uh, uh, Leighton, you know, uh, had a uh, lot to do with the success of irreligiosity. And uh, he should be given due credit for that. 
uh, and and you know we were good friends for a long long time uh, so I would say congratulations to Layton good luck in any future endeavors that you uh, decide to do and uh, leave it at that okay that sounds healthy I like it it's better than what I heard <laughs> thanks Matt alright Floyd McDaniel first of all he wants to say what the hell and then he what? has some questions what the hell what do you do in your spare oh Correction, make that free time, given what, that you have any. Well, yeah, what is this thing called free time? This is what I do in my free time. I talk to you on the internet. Oh, God, you need a life, sir. <laughs> you need to get out there. Yeah, that, that probably won't happen for a few years either. So, no, I, I essentially have no free time. What, what I do is read books, essentially, maybe listen to audio lectures and do podcasts. Yeah, sometimes I, I drag you out skiing. That is true. That has happened on occasion, and mountain biking. Sometimes I mountain bike downhill. That's right, but only downhill. I, Matt pulls me uphill, and I mountain bike downhill. Um, he'd also like to know if you still take donations toward the website, upcoming broadcasts, or as a Halloween bailout. No, um, again, I felt um, I didn't want to take donations so long as I wasn't making any new content. I, you know, I appreciate everyone's donations. It's fantastic. Once we get the new site uh, up and running, I'll, I'll put the donation button back on. Oh, good. Excellent. And let's see. There's one more question. What uh, what podcast do you listen to? Uh, there are no other podcasts. This is the one true podcast. That That is uh, blasphemy. Who said that? Oh, that was also Floyd McDaniel. Yeah, he's excommunicated from the podcast. You're out, Floyd. For, for whoring after other heathen podcasts that don't exist. Yeah, I just don't have a whole lot of time. That's the problem. That is that is true. Sometimes you down. I got like six podcasts I listen to, and then uh, then they pile up, and they're all like an hour, hour and a half long, and I have to put them on double speed on the iPod to listen yeah. to them all the time. Yeah, that, that's something I had to do when I was listening to the Evidence for Faith podcast in preparation for the debate. I could not tolerate those on single speed. You had to double speed them. Yes. Uh, you want to comment on Giovanni Scavetta's comment? Uh, yes, what is it? Okay, I'm going to see if I can do this all in one breath. Okay. <gasps> Have you two any idea how dull and boring the arguments you made now are, as given by other podcasting people of similar persuasion now you two have stopped? No, because I don't listen to those other podcasts. That's right. They don't exist. They do not exist. Stop whoring after other podcasts, you heathens. He continues, joking apart, your humor and self-mocking nature make discussion interesting and, more importantly, attainable and memorable. I wonder if he's of the same opinion uh, how entertaining it was when he was uh, when he just finished listening to the uh, my section on homochirality. <laughs> that was not boring at all. Uh, of course, of course not. <laughs> you know, you want to. Another reason why people never talk about this is a, it's it's ridiculously complex to even explain to people, and b, it's uh, ridiculously complex. Period. Right. See, you know, the creations don't fucking understand it. They just see that, oh, look, it's 100% left-handed. So God had to do it. Right. Period. There's something weird and crazy and deep that we could pick apart shallowly and nobody will understand it anyway. Right. It's a way to sound, because you're using scientific-sounding terms like chirality and enantiomers. And so the, the audience, who I, I 
doubly guarantee I have no fucking idea what they're talking about will go, wow, that's amazing. Those scientists are fucking idiots. How could they not see this? Those atheistic scientists. Oh, stupid atheistic scientists. God, if, if only they, they could take off their blinders and come to the truth of Jesus. Right. That's why I like banana arguments better. <laughs> that is all the questions, I believe. Excellent. Well, we'll meet again next week then, Matt Wakefield. Or will we? What are the odds of that happening? Ten to seven. <laughs> ten to the fiftieth, clearly. It's always ten, ten. Ten to the fiftieth. Unless it's ten to the three billion.